0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: Why do you think I jumped? It works, just like it said it would in a book. You'll burn the building down, first thing you know. Oh, no, I won't, Mr. Ells. This is an experiment in electricity. Electricity? That stuff's dangerous. Stop fooling with it down here. How am I going to find out about it unless I fool with it? You told me I could experiment down here. You see, Mr. Ells, if that thing works, everybody's going to be able to use it all over the world. What is it? It's a new kind of light, something that's never been seen before. Listen to this, Mr. Ells, from Faraday's experiments with electricity. The object of my search was for a way to convert magnetism into electricity. When I broke the current, a tiny spark leaped between the bits of charcoal. Lo, I beheld the embryo of electric light. But I have rather been desirous of discovering new facts concerning magneto-electric induction than of exalting the force of those already obtained. ...being assured that the latter would find their full development hereafter. Hereafter. That's now.
2: Good morning, London. It's Thursday, January 9th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now till noon. And no no not right wing it's just right
3: Fade
4: into color color into black and white Under the bed clothes everything will be all right
2: it is no light matter. The ban on the incandescent light bulb, which began its phase on, in on January 1st, is a most ominous development. That'll be the topic of our discussion beginning in the second half of today's hour-long broadcast, along with some commentaries on the Kellogg situation, and Robert's going to take a, take apart the words crony capitalism. Is that right, Robert? And introduce perhaps a new word to some people. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. For my part... Um, I'm going to be talking about something a little bit different, and that is about a book I got for Christmas, as I usually get some books every Christmas, and this year I got another one of Ann Coulter's books, her latest books. And, of course, Ann Coulter, of course, has been both a guest and a topic of discussion on our show in the past. Ann's latest book includes a chapter called O oh, Canada, in which she relates her experience with Canadian political correctness and censorship at the University of of Ottawa. She does not mention, however, her quite peaceful, if not uncontroversial, appearance right here at Western University, where she made her infamous flying carpet comment. (laughs) Remember that? Yes, I do. And of course, we can't fail to mention the role of both Mary Lou Ambrosio and Al Gretzky in their work with the International Free Press Society, who were instrumental in making that Coulter Canadian tour the success it was. So I guess it's with a certain sense of disappointment and frustration I find myself today having to take to task this very articulate and intelligent critic of the left and of liberalism, For her very inarticulate and unintelligent comments on a subject that continues to engross, apparently, so-called Christian conservatives. And that's the whole issue of evolution. I don't know why she even put a chapter on that in her books, and she's dealt with it before. And, of course, the issue of intelligent design. Name of her book, Never Trust a Liberal Over Three, Especially a Republican. I love that title. Mm Mm-hmm. it's a great book. I was going to actually start the show off by recommending it, but when I got to those last chapters, I said, oh my goodness, I have to deal with this first. got to get this out of the way. And this is another one of the, my Christmas gifts, of course. So every Christmas, I get a pile of books, and I decide which ones I'm going to read. And it's amazing. There's some great stuff in there, too, by the way. And I'm sure I'm going to be using parts of this book to bolster some of our other issues in the future. But in a chapter titled, The Flash Mob Method of Scientific Inquiry, originally published as one of uh, Ann Coulter's columns on August 24th, 2011. Coulter needlessly enters a debate that seriously hampers her credibility as, as an objective commentator, and is this whole evolution versus creation issue. Now, before we pass any judgment, I think you must hear her basic argument out, which may not be quite the argument you expect. In this chapter, Coulter refers to one of her previous bestsellers, her 2006 book, Godless, the Church of Liberalism, and states that roughly one-third of that book was an attack on liberals' creation myth, which she calls Darwinian evolution. Ever heard of that that myth? (laughs) But apparently, liberals didn't want to argue back, she asserts. However, having examined her so-called argument about evolution, my question to her would be, what could those liberals possibly say? Her argument left no room for argument at all, and she openly admits it, and then condemns liberals for not wasting their time on her non-argument. Quote, this is from Coulter's book, evolution is the only subject that is discussed exclusively as a, quote, do you believe, end quote, question with yes or no answers. How about conservative journalists start putting mics in front of liberal candidates and demanding, do you believe in the Bible? Yes or no? Is an unborn baby human? Yes or no? And do you believe teenagers should have sex? Yes or no? This is the flash mob method of scientific inquiry. Liberals quickly surround and humiliate anyone who disagrees with them, she argues. Well, since I find myself in disagreement with her on this issue, let me first personally begin by answering each of these questions that Coulter very incorrectly labels scientific theory. There's nothing scientific about asking politicians and voters about their beliefs, whether those beliefs are based on reality, ignorance, misunderstanding or outright fiction. Do I believe in evolution? (laughs) As opposed to what? Creating something out of nothing? Then yes. More than that, I actually believe that I understand the theory of evolution. In fact, evolution is how creation takes place, but not the creation of something out of nothing, the creation of something different than was before. Do I believe in the Bible? Yes, I believe that a book called The Bible Exists. To literally believe what's in it would be to demand that I accept a host of contradictions that could not possibly coexist, so no on that count. Is an unborn baby human? Well, if the mother's human, (laughs) yes. (laughs) If the mother's a chimpanzee, no. (laughs) As a matter of definition, of course, there are no unborn babies. That's sort of a trick of epistemology there. Before our birth, the identity of the unborn remains human, but it's not a baby as such. Uh, Nor does changing definitions in mid-argument change anything. It's kind of a dishonest way of muddling the issue. Do I believe that teenagers should have sex? Well, if they're of the age of consent, since teenagers run from 13 to 19 or 20, it's not my business to answer such a question based on whatever their complex relationship might be. Should middle-aged people have sex? Believe it or not, this is the same question. If they're not of the age of consent, or do not consent, the answer is always no. Otherwise, I have no other answer because it's not my business beyond that consideration. I'll expand on some of this later, but... Let's hear out Coulter's argument against evolution. Now, she states on page 342 of her book that, quote, advances in science have completely discredited Darwin's theory, this mystery religion from the Victorian age. Have you heard about that? It's nonsense. (laughs) Well, here's what she says. Darwin's theory was that life on Earth began with single-cell life forms which, by random mutation, sex and death would pass on desirable mutations this process over billions of years would lead to the creation of a new species the extremely generous test Darwin set for his theory was this if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications my theory would absolutely break down if Darwin were able to come back today and peer through a modern microscope to see the inner workings of a cell he would instantly abandon his own theory It is a mathematical impossibility, for example, that all 30 to 40 parts of the cell's flagellum could all arise at once by random mutation. Even a mechanism as simple as a three-part mousetrap requires all three parts to be working together at once to be useful. Complex mechanisms disprove Darwin's theory. Complexity, isn't that amazing? You know, complexity isn't complex. <laughs> it's very simple. If she wants to educate herself about
3: the theory of evolution, then she should perhaps watch a, a YouTube video um, by what's his name, Richard Dawkins. Oh, she condemned him completely. She. I've um, uh, obviously watched. It was called. Climbing Mount Improbable, and he actually takes apart some very complex physical systems, like the eye, yeah. and shows the progression through evolutionary changes of how such a thing, including the flagellum, can uh, come about.
2: You know, it, it's interesting when she says random mutations. It, it's not random. That that you know what what that means. That assumes that there's been a choice and an intelligence behind it. Otherwise, random has to be by no, choice. No, right? they are random um, well, in the sense that they're unpredictable. Yes. No, the random mutation. Well, I don't believe in randomness
3: anyway. Right. That's but what I'm- they're they're <coughs> random in the sense that um ...having a technical failure here... <laughs> ...random, in the sense that a mutation in the genetic material is usually caused by some sort of radiation that comes, like cosmological radiation hitting um, the cells in uh, a spermatozoa, and that uh, causes a mutation. Yeah, sure, you cannot predict it, but that's what they're talking about when they talk about
2: random mutations. That's all. Well, I think it's more talking about whether there's a, a will behind it, because that's where her argument she, she says it's a mathematical impossibility that all these parts could arise at once. Well... That has to be false, otherwise it wouldn't be happening. Therefore, the mathematical possibility or probability is 100%. And she's looking at the result and confusing it with the process. Uh, it's a process derived from the properties of what those things are, right? That's why they do what they do. And she says, even a mechanism as simple as a three-part mouse trap requires all the parts to be useful. Now, here she's confusing the man-made with the metaphysical, and she's attaching purpose To things that simply exist, assuming that survival is a purpose, and not a process. It's also a non-sequitur in a sense that the cell has already evolved to this point. It's not evolving, you know. Exactly. It's continuing to. So, um, you know, it's just amazing. She says, Darwinians, concludes Coulter, accept unsubstantiated just-so stories of evolution and ignore the patent absurdity of some of its constructs because they are committed to coming up with a theory that excludes god and there's her argument so i had to ask myself how can someone who seems so logical on so many issues suddenly fall into this pit of non-logic and totally outrageous conclusions? Well, believe it or not, she answered her own questions in her book at the back. And in this, this is a chapter in the back that's sort of done in a question, you know, Q&A fashion. Based on her BeliefNet interview, which was uh, recorded in July of 2006, just some of the brief summaries of this question answer. Question asked was, When you say that most liberals don't believe in God, what is your evidence? She responds, I don't say most be- liberals don't believe in God. I say liberalism is a godless religion. Now, that's an interesting twist. Then she's asked, Are churches that don't agree with your politics or religious beliefs not really churches? Her answer, correct. They're called mosques. (laughs) Question, don't many people whom you would classify as belonging to the church of liberalism define themselves as Christian or Jewish? Answer, to the extent one is practicing liberalism, one is not practicing the religion of our father. Question, is it possible to be a good Christian and sincerely believe that a bigger welfare state and higher taxes to fund it is the best way in a complex modern society for us to fulfill our gospel obligation to help the poor? Answer, possible, but not likely. Confiscatory taxation enforced by threat of imprisonment is stealing, a practice strongly frowned upon by our Creator. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh God, that's right. <laughs> no, I'm absolutely. Um, uh, I don't know. Put it back by. Hank you're, you're looking at me like I'm making she, this up. She
3: is throwing in an arbitrary, and the only way you can argument uh, against an argue against an arbitrary, the arbitrary being the existence of a God, is to simply say that it's arbitrary. Therefore, <laughs> we cannot go any further in this debate that's right evolution doesn't exist she claims and that's So therefore I there's a God so so th- this is why S- I'm sorry no <laughs> that's not a logical
2: that is a non sequitur it does not follow exactly and you know that's also why I, I don't know why she's surprised that nobody's arguing with her what's to argue with when you when you come up with arguments <laughs> like this and she's asked you say that Darwin's theory of evolution is about one notch above Scientology and scientific rigor so what do you think really happened did God create the world in six days did he create each species separately Did he set a chain of causation in motion? Did he cause evolution in the sense that all the species are related to each other, but God guided their descent? And here's her answer. These are unanswerable questions. Really? Except the latter. God did not cause evolution because evolution doesn't exist. (laughs) My faith and reason... Both of those things. Tell me that God created the world, and I'm not particularly interested in the details. I'll find out when I meet my creator. There, that's it. Debate's over. That's right. Yeah. My faith. There.
3: There you go. Debate's over. Your faith. Okay. So you are not willing to listen to reason, or evidence,
2: or logic. Well, you realize the joke of this What's that? is that she always complains that the liberals have no, nothing to stand on because they, they're a religion, and that they argue on faith and on religion. <laughs> You see, there is the ultimate irony of this. And she's asked, can there be such a thing as intelligent design without a divine designer? And she answers, yes, in order to explain the vast evidence of intelligence throughout the physical world while excluding God, Cambridge astrophysicist Fred Hoyle and Chandra uh, Wickramasinghe. As well as Francis Crick, winner of the Nobel Prize for his co-discovery of DNA, they concocted theories about intelligence being transported from outer space to Earth on comets or spaceships. Of course, some might say that begs the question, who's the intelligent designer in outer space? (laughs) <laughs> Obviously, she wasn't listening to our last broadcast when you were talking about extraplanetary terraforming. I guess we would have been the intelligent designer coming from outer space in that situation, eh, Robert? I wouldn't waste my breath uh, debating anybody on this. As a matter of fact, we have a couple of friends
3: who who do not believe in evolution, and they're... They're very intelligent people, much like Ann Coulter. We agree on 99% of anything political. But when it comes to something like like the existence of an arbitrary, like a god, or the theory of evolution, um, their ignorance, basically, is is, is the stumbling block. They cannot, as Ann Coulter says, well, you can't have a flagellum Um, because that's too complex, when we can actually display exactly how that evolved.
2: There you go. Or the
3: eye. There's evolutionary stages where you can actually demonstrate how the eye
2: evolved. You know, I don't know whether the, the, the debate of Christians and the whole evolution thing is really about evolution at all. I think it's really a moral issue. And... What I want to cite with that is another point of view on the evolution debate that I disagree with, the one we're going to hear now, coming up from Star Trek Enterprise, Mm -hmm. which is possibly one of the most despicable episodes (laughs) of Enterprise I've ever seen in terms of the moral decision they arrive at. And they arrive at it over an issue of evolution, and I'm sure Coulter would disagree with this, as would I in this case. Mm -hmm. Let's listen in on this, and we'll talk about it when we get back. Any progress?
5: the uh, research has been challenging
0: to say the least a cure doctor have you found a cure
5: even if i could find one i'm not sure it would be ethical ethical we'd be interfering with an evolutionary process that has been going on for thousands of years Every time you treat an illness, you're interfering. That's what doctors do. You're forgetting about the mink. What about the mink? I've been studying their genome as well, and I've seen evidence of increasing intelligence, motor skills, linguistic abilities. Unlike the Wallachians, they appear to be in the process of an evolutionary awakening. It may take millennia. But the Mank have the potential to become the dominant species on this planet.
0: And that won't happen as long as the Balakians are around. If the Mank are to flourish,
5: they need an opportunity to survive on their own.
0: Well, what are you suggesting?
5: We choose one species over the other? All I'm saying is that we let nature make the choice. The hell with nature. You're a doctor. You have a moral obligation to help people who are suffering. I'm also a scientist. And I'm obligated to consider the larger issues. 35,000 years ago, your species coexisted with other humanoids. Isn't that correct? Go ahead. What if an alien race had interfered and given the Neanderthals an evolutionary advantage? Fortunately for you, they didn't.
0: I appreciate your perspective on all of this. But we're talking about something that might happen, might happen thousands of years from now. They've asked for our help. I am not prepared to walk away based on a theory.
5: Evolution is more than a theory. It is a fundamental scientific principle, forgive me for saying so. But I believe your compassion for these people is affecting your judgment. My compassion
0: guides my judgment. Captain. Can you find a cure?
4: Doctor.
5: I already have.
0: down to the Wallachian hospital. Sir,
5: it would go against all my principles if I didn't ask you to reconsider what I I
0: have reconsidered. I spent the whole night reconsidering. And what I've decided goes against all my principles. Someday, my people are going to come up with some sort of a doctrine something that tells us what we can and can't do out here, should and shouldn't do. But until somebody tells me that they've drafted that directive, I'm going to have to remind myself every day that we didn't come out here to play
2: God. Well, there you go. (laughs) It's one of the possibly top ten disgusting and contradictory to the whole philosophy of the federation even episodes of star trek you know against principle their own principles really and uh you know just one of the worst episodes ever we're not here to play god says archer well actually captain archer yes you are because god won't do anything you are god's hand in the universe and in the light of knowledge that responsibility is unavoidable without making a moral choice and that's the whole issue here if you were ignorant and didn't have the cure, then no one could, you know, could fault you for not doing anything. But given that they asked them to help, they said they would, they found the cure and then they wouldn't give it to them, right? I'm going, even just on a contract basis, that's wrong. But that's the whole issue, even of the issue of, of, of religion, you know, the whole point of light of knowledge being cast out of the Garden of Eden and the whole thing. Because that's when we became moral beings in the, in a symbolic sense. In the, light of, in the light of knowledge and reason, here are the choices. Choice number one, the not-here-to-play-God argument, means that in this Star Trek example practice, to choose to kill in favor of an unknown future, which is just like the Green Movement, right? We'll kill everything today to save the planet for some imaginary future a billion years from now. Or number two, save the lives you know you can save, and nature be damned, as he said. And that is the correct decision. The first choice is immoral, the second one is the moral one. The so-called doctor abandoned his doctor's hats for the scientist's hat, although the real hat he put on was the hat of God. You know, it's clear in this issue, and just like Captain Archer on the Starship Enterprise, Ann Coulter, too, is willing to abandon principle. The rational principle on which her commentaries and observations about liberals seem to be based for a completely non-rational non-principle is subjectivism and intrinsicism on this issue. Isn't it funny how both of them kind of took different points of view on the evolution issue and ab- had to abandon principle both ways. You see what I'm saying there? Yes, I do. Now, here's to me the bottom. I've I, I said this before. The presumed debate between creationism and evolution is a non-starter. The two topics have nothing to do with each other. Even if creationism is how existence began, evolution would still be a fact and would still be an issue. The issue of creationism is about creation itself. Of all existent matter, living or not, it has nothing to do with life, per se, but with existence. And with regard to the issue of creationism, there is one and only one consideration to be taken into account. It's a black and white, and it's absolutely clear. Is there such a thing as non-existence in the grand physical and metaphysical sense of the word? Because without non-existence as a metaphysical fact, there would be no need or cause of creation. So you have to start with non-existence. Does that make sense to you, if you're going to go that way? If you're going to go that way. So there is no first cause, but merely the axiom that existence exists, and that existence itself is the supreme being. No first cause, just be cause. Ain't no such thing as nothing, honey, because if there was, wouldn't that be something? We say that a lot. And it was Aristotle, of course, who insisted that existence continued to exist whether one was capable of perceiving it or not, while Plato insisted that reality was formed basically more in our, our minds. Now, here's what I'm thinking about species evolution. This is about species distinctions. This is where a big issue comes up. Did, did we come from monkeys and all that stuff? I'm going to say, looking back, That species evolution is not an act of God, or even a scientific or biological thing, but an act of definition. The birth of a new species is an epistemological event, not an event in nature. Mother nature, being mere process, doesn't know one species from another. That kind of knowledge classification, which is all it is, is necessary only to one species, and that's humanity, the rational species. The species that is distinguished from the other species on this basis alone. As biological units, you know, look at us. All mammals pretty much are designed alike. Whether a man, woman, child, or a chimpanzee, gorilla, cow, horse, pig, monkey, dog, cat, mouse... It's kind of coincidental, isn't it, that we pretty much all have four appendages, whether we're upright or on all fours, that we have mouths to eat with and communicate, genitals that are all pretty much designed alike, two eyes, one nose, two ears, varying levels of hair, heart, lungs, I mean, I could just keep on going, we're we're all pretty much alike and as biological units, and I was thinking, okay... To an imaginary alien who evolved in the vacuum of space, let's say, not on another planet, but in the vacuum of space, and who would have no need for any of the biological features of earthbound mammals, I would have to guess that all mammals on Earth would look pretty much alike to him, and might be regarded by this imaginary alien as a single species. Until that alien had a need to distinguish some mammals from others, they would continue to be regarded as some single identity by way of classification, or at least regard the differences between species as insignificant to their purposes. You think I'm way off course on this? No, I I love what you're saying, actually.
3: You're looking at me like... Taking the biological argument down to the epistemological,
2: I mean, it's all about definitions, isn't it? Isn't that exactly what it is? Mm. And maybe that's where scientists are getting all confused. I mean, we can see a species change. It depends on when we decide that species is significantly different from another, right?
3: Well, it's a, there is actually a
2: defining line. Yes. It's, you can't have viable offspring. That's that's a biological mm, de- definition. B- but not just from looking at something. But it is so, a definition, isn't yes. Now, and everybody talks about the biology, too, but, you know... Extinction is an evolutionary act. The dinosaurs being wiped off the face of the planet, even though caused by an external factor, you know, say a meteor striking the Earth, if that's what it was, was still an evolutionary step in the progress of life on Earth. Um, It's not all about internalities of the organic life being studied, but also about the externalities that act upon the organism, thus actively changing it. You know, it gets down to the nature versus nurture by way of classification, um some mammals from others so extinction is is part of the whole evolutionary thing to those who reject evolution the event of a meteor striking the earth can only be interpreted as a purposeful act of god since the odds of this happening are so high i mean what are the mathematical odds of a meteor and the earth being at the same time at the same place
3: <laughs> right
2: 100% after the fact unknown before any previous observation and suppose we spotted yet another threatening heavenly object heading our way, which would cause our extinction or mass decimation. Would it be interfering with God's will to try and deflect and or destroy the incoming object? Should we just let it go? Of course, to the religiously committed person, the untrue believer, all of these... Ec- existential issues don't even really matter it's the life issues they're concerned with and God's creation continues with every passing moment which is why for example a purposeful intervention with a pregnancy is considered to be defying God's will in some sort of way blood transfusions, end of life issues, all regarded the same way, so the whole issue of creationism turns out to be just a distraction from the belief that all actions are intellectually driven by some unseen intelligence that they call God and that's a circular argument this comes around just goes around. Never has. That's why you can't argue it. Mm-hmm. The you only co- it. yep. The only conclusion you can draw from all of this is that all actions are acts of God, and nothing else can explain either existence or intelligence. So my bottom line is: never trust a religious conservative, especially when they're being religiously political. I suppose the good news in all of this is that at least with regard to the creationism ideas adopted by some of the right-wingers on this issue, uh, at least they're still strong advocates of freedom of speech. <laughs> That's about all I can say. And uh, You know, you know, okay. when Ann Coulter mentioned
3: that when she brings up uh, God, and she said the liberals don't debate it, she takes that as uh, proof that her argument is correct is that oh this is non-debatable you don't have an argument against me no it's simply that you cannot argue against the arbitrary you cannot argue against the person whose basis for an understanding is based on faith and not reason yeah that precludes an argument Precisely. And Otherwise, that's... I really like Ed
2: Coulter. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> me too. And I want to... And the same problem. But anyways, let's wrap this part up, and we'll let uh, Penn and Teller have the last word on this, and we'll be back with the whole issue of light bulb ban. We can start right off with the first
3: two books of the Bible in Genesis. In the first chapter, God creates Adam and Eve at the same time. In the second chapter, God creates Adam and And then Adam does a few things, he names the animals, he does this and he does that, and he gets lonely. And he talks to God and says, you know, I'm lonely. God then says, all right, well, I'll provide you with a mate. And then he takes the rib and creates Eve out of his rib and so on. We all know these stories. These are two different creation stories.
0: Well, I wouldn't call them contradictions as much as commentaries the one on the other. Uh, again, let's point out, we probably do have uh, two different authors here whose work was blended together then in editorial uh, re, uh, revisioning somewhat. Ah, yes, of course, two authors. Sometimes the Bible is the word of God. Sometimes it's the word of man, and sometimes it's the word of two or more men. Sometimes the Bible's literal and sometimes it's simply symbolic. The symbols don't always connote non-reality. Not by a long shot.
3: Now, believers will say, oh, well, that's just two different versions of the same event. Fine, but then don't in the next breath tell me, oh, we have to take the Bible literally. And when it says this, it means
2: this.
1: Take it easy, Jim. All worry ever got me was indigestion. Look, Snade, if Edison gets the franchise to light this town, I may as well make a bonfire of my gas stocks. Well, let him have it. The light probably won't work. That's the trouble. It will work. Everything Edison invents works, and works well. I found that out to my sorrow. Well, what do you want me to do? Stop him from getting that franchise. I see no reason, gentlemen. Why Mr. Thomas A. Edison should not be granted a franchise to electrically illuminate the specified district under discussion. Mr. Chairman, your own enthusiasm is not shared by all of us by a long shot. We are asked to let this man use New York as a testing ground for his... The light has been tested thoroughly. You've been shown that its fire hazard is so much less than that of gas that... Just a minute. Gas is not on trial here. No, no, but I can see that the electric light is. Gentlemen, I've told you that we're willing to put our wires underground, so they will not overburden your telephone poles. I've assured you we'll take every other necessary precaution. I still say the risk is too great for his impossible claims. But they're not impossible. And even if they were, my associates and I are the ones taking the risk. We're not asking New York City for any financial aid. We're merely asking for permission to install our equipment, at our own risk, at our own expense, and if we fail at our own loss. Well, that seems fair enough. Shall we vote on it? Yeah. Mr. Edison. One word, please. I demand to be heard. Mr. Taggart. This is extremely presumptuous. Let him speak. He's a taxpayer. Make it brief, Mr. Taggart. Thank you. I want to respectfully call the attention of this board to the law which requires that a specified time limit be put on all contracts. Mr. Edison's project must be completed on some definite day. That's the law. Mr. Edison, uh, how long will this uh, experiment of yours take? It won't be an experiment, Mr. Taggart. Please, don't let's quibble. How long will it take? It'll take a year, perhaps two. There we are, gentlemen. One year, perhaps two. That means that for two years, the streets of the city of New York are to be torn up, and traffic at a standstill. As a taxpayer, I protest against such an outrage. I protest with all the vehemence at my command. Well, what would you suggest, then? I suggest that Mr. Edison be limited to three months. Can you do it in three months, Mr. Edison? No, sir. And I doubt if Mr. Taggart could pipe the same area for gas in three months. The gas is already there, Mr. Edison, functioning for the benefit of thousands of grateful taxpayers. I say those taxpayers have rights. Rights, it's the duty of this board to protect. Mr. Chairman! Mr. Edison? I didn't come here this morning to deprive the taxpayers of any rights. I'm inviting this board to let them make use of a discovery which will endanger and handicap no one but those who are afraid of its competition with their own monopolies. Your own experts have shown you that the electric light is practical. Its enemies know that it will be a cheaper form of illumination than gas, and that's the reason they're against it. But that's not the reason I'm fighting for it. I didn't hunt for it over a period of years because I thought there'd be money at the end of the search. It's because I've always known that if we could find a light without a flame, that you could put into homes where men and women are ruining their eyesight under oil lamps and gas jets, where surgeons are performing operations, where doctors are working over microscopes, men down in coal mines, people everywhere, could have a safer and a brighter light, that I'd be doing something that every one of them would be grateful to me for, whether they ever paid me in money or not. Now that light has been found. What are you going to do about it?
3: Welcome back to Just Right on CHW 94.9 FM, where you can call us at 519-661-3600 to join in our conversation, or send us some feedback at feedback at org. And if you go to our website at justrightmedia.org, you can also find links to find us on YouTube, Twitter, and iTunes, every one of our archived episodes is available on iTunes and is a great, easy way to listen to the program or past programs on your morning commute. So, beginning this year, as you mentioned, Bob, earlier in the show, the U.S. and Canadian governments have moved to ban the incandescent light bulb. The same bulb which Thomas Edison and others spent their lives developing and perfecting. And while it is suspected that these governments around the world, by the way, Cuba, I think, was one of the first ones in 2005, Um, who are banning these bulbs for environmentalist reasons, that apparently is only half of the story. In a New Year's Day article by Timothy P. Kearney writing for the Washington Examiner, we discover that the ban on Edison's crowning achievement came about as a successful attempt by the manufacturers of the bulbs to lobby government to implement a ban so as to increase the sales of the more expensive compact fluorescent bulbs which, as it turns out, have a greater profit margin than the inexpensive incandescent. Now, I want to quote from the article of Timothy P. Kearney. Quote, People often assume green regulations like this represent the triumph of environmental activists trying to save the planet. That's rarely the case, and it wasn't here. Light bulb manufacturers wholeheartedly supported the efficiency standards, and General Electric, Sylvania, and Philips, the three companies that dominated the bulb industry, all backed the 2007 rule. This wasn't the case of an industry getting on board with an inevitable regulation in order to tweak it. The lighting industry was the main reason the legislation was moving. And as the New York Times reported in 2011, Phillips formed a coalition with environmental groups, including the Natural Resources Defense Council, to push for higher standards. GE, Phillips, and Sylvania dominated the U.S. market. In incandescence, but they couldn't convert that dominance into price hikes. Because of the light bulbs low material and manufacturing costs, any big climb in prices would have invited new competitors to undercut the giants, and that new competitor would probably have won a distribution deal with Walmart. Capitalism ruining their party, the bulb makers turned to government. Phillips teamed up with NRDC, GE leaned on its huge lobbying army, the largest in the nation and soon they were able to ban the low profit margin bulbs. There is a middle ground between everyone using traditional bulbs and traditional bulbs being illegal. It's called free choice. Let people choose if they want more efficient and expensive light bulbs. Maybe they'll choose LEDs for some purposes and cheap bulbs for others. But consumer choice is no good either for nanny staters or companies seeking higher profit margins. Technologies often run the course from breakthrough innovation to obsolete. Think of the A track the Model T, or Kodachrome film. But the market didn't kill the traditional light bulb. Government did it at the request of big business." Unquote. Now, this practice has been incorrectly labeled crony capitalism. That's a term I really dislike, and I don't use it. It's a smear term. And it's used to smear capitalism
2: yeah not the cronies <laughs> no the crony
3: the cr- yes. term crony simply means old friend crony comes from the greek chronios meaning long term it has come to imply a close friend in business as in the old boys network inherently there's nothing wrong with private business favoring friends and even in politics Some relationships are beneficial and even logical given the circumstances. For example, do you remember this, Bob? When Prime Minister Jean Chrétien was once criticized for his patronage appointments, his response was, and I'm paraphrasing here because I I couldn't find the quote, you'd prefer I appoint somebody I don't know? That's right. (laughs) I love that. There's a certain logic to that. But the line is crossed. When business and government work together like old cronies, to eliminate competition and to interfere in the free market there's a line you don't cross. Capitalism and I have to reiterate this over and over again but as a p- political system requires and as a political system requires the elimination of force. Government is at its very core and definition an instrument of force. Therefore, the moment force is introduced into the marketplace, that marketplace can no longer be considered to be working under capitalism. And that's it. Right there. Yeah, right there. That's the, There's the defining term, epistemology again. Evolution. It's <laughs> all about definitions and epistemology. What do you mean by crony? What do you mean by capitalism? What do you mean by government? And if
2: we want to be morally honest about what these people are doing, it's criminal. It's yeah. simply criminal it's simply for a, a businessman immoral. to get together with, with the government and force people to buy his product. Yep. You know
3: the word that describes what they're doing best is perhaps dirigism. Now, dirigism is an economic system where the state exerts a strong direct direct influence over investment. It's from the Latin meaning to direct and in this case, we have the government directing the course of investment by creating light bulb standards so high as to effectively eliminate the competition to favor some businesses over their competitors. Now, of the two terms in crony capitalism, it is capitalism which is meant to be the derogatory term. Did you ever figure that out? Yeah. When somebody says, oh, that's crony capitalism, the word crony, that's not the, that's not the bad word. They're trying to say that the bad word is capitalism. And then this is by design and typically a tool of the left to disparage capitalism. For the uninitiated to accept this term is to belie their understanding of capitalism as a political system which is one which abolishes the use of force. But in the case of the lobbying efforts of the light bulb manufacturers, while they should be berated for their attempt to introduce force into the marketplace and to restrict our choices, it's the government which should share the brunt of our condemnation. If the politicians we elected fully understood the proper function of government, that of an instrument of force to protect our individual rights, then when confronted by the lobbyists their answer should have been no, go away. We will not restrict people's choices or interfere in the marketplace just to suit you. But unfortunately such politicians are rare we have politicians who either do not fully appreciate the proper function of government as a referee and not a player in the market, or do not understand but or do understand, but choose to ignore it. If the former it's up to us to educate them or remove them from op- office, which I think is probably easier because there's no educating some people, and replace them with better men. If the latter If they're acting out of willful malice towards the public and a free and open economy, then they can only be denigrated for the scum that they are. You called it right, Bob, when you said shit should be criminal. They should be put away, in jail, away from us. They're using force on us. They're initiating force. Now, that particular clip we just heard was from a great movie. It's called Edison, the Man, starring Spencer Tracy. I just watched it last night. Awesome movie. Yeah. I'm glad you found it for us. (laughs) I didn't know that. I actually had it on my hard drive, and I didn't even know it. It demonstrated how one man was asking the municipal government of New York City for the chance to light their city with electricity, while on the other hand, we had a, a Mr. Taggart, of the gas company, lobbying that same government to put such restrictions on Mr. Edison as to effectively prevent him from competing. Crony capitalism has been going on for a while hasn't it? Dirigism. (laughs) Dirigism, sorry. Criminality. Let's not use use that. Criminality, immorality, Mm -hmm. yeah, force, thuggery. Thankfully those politicians awarded Edison the franchise with the restriction he could actually live with and the rest, as they say, is history. But what thanks do we give Edison today? but to have modern-day taggards lobby the government once more to restrict competition in light bulbs, and modern-day despots more than willing to give it to these lobbyists and couch their deceit in terms that they think will get them re-elected to office. Oh, we're doing it for the environment. No, you're not. It's these actions of these unscrupulous businessmen which the left point to as representative of capitalists. They neglect to point to the politicians, who are the only ones who have the real power to use force in the economy, all the businessmen are doing, as unscrupulous as they are, is asking for the use of force. It's actually the politicians who do it. They're the ones who sign the law they're the ones who should f- feel the brunt. Well, the only difference
2: I see between the two of them is that we as voters may have some access to the politicians, mm-hmm. and we as consumers have access to the business people. You could boycott businesses like well, this. you can, you can't, but yeah. it's not going to stop a prohib- prohibition. I c- I consider them both equally morally culpable. I oh, mean, morally
3: culpable? Oh, for sure. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. and now, I'm not sure how I'm going to handle that because I just can't stand thieves and, and con <laughs> artists. <laughs> Nor I. <laughs> and, you know, out of the millions
3: and I mean millions of businessmen in the world, it's the few fraud artists like the Bernie Madoffs who stand out to represent capitalism to the left, when in actuality they stand out simply as fraud artists and criminals. To the left, all businessmen are snake oil salesmen ready to take advantage of people, when in fact, the millions of honest businessmen toil to provide everyone with everything they need, or could even possibly want, if only they were left alone to compete in a marketplace devoid of force and fraud and the interference from snake oil politicians. We'll be back right after this.
1: You know, tonight marks the return of our Tri-County Freelance Consumer Investigator. Wonderful man who's helped us uh, look at all the rip-offs going around for the consumer these days in Ohio all over the Midwest. Please welcome with me, Mr. Lou (laughs) Moffat. If you were with us earlier, uh, Oh, I should say hello. How do you do? Uh, Hello. Good to see her. You were with us earlier in the earlier weeks. You saw when Lou came out here and showed us some of the dangers of the rip-offs of the music, home music industry, Mm. and where we could get some really good guitar lessons that would add up to a song. (laughs) Also, you showed us the wonder of the Wonder Blender. Wonder Blender, that's correct, Barth. You're you're a wonderful watchdog, and you're making sure the consumer is protected. What have you got for us tonight?
6: Well, Barth, I've been investigating this land fraud business in recreational land. It's appalling oh. what's going on around this country. It really is. <laughs> it <laughs> seems like the fast buck operators are with us again. Well, and we're glad to have you. Okay? Thank you, Barth. <laughs> Go for the first. I will, Barth. Good, okay, you're enjoy it. Thank you. See everybody. You know, I travel around this great country of ours investigating fraud. And what I found in the real estate business is absolutely appalling, especially down in Florida. If you investigate real estate down there, down there, friends, you'll find it something like this orange. Watch out, because it could be half water. Something else, too, friends that I found. You know, but frankly, what What you're looking for in real estate investments, of course, is investor security along with recreational features. Now, that's a tough order to fill, isn't it, friends? Well, I found one development I think that I could recommend, beautiful Lake of the Slough. (laughs) Sounds terrific, doesn't it, friends? You bet it is. Because let me tell you... If that development had an apple tree, you'd think it was the garden of paradise. And frankly, friends, now is the time to buy a Beautiful Lake of the Slough because this this is a drought year, as you know, and there's no water in it. First good rain, the whole thing could disappear just like that. Let me tell you something, friends. I've got some pictures here. Let me show you how beautiful this is. Take a look right over here. Isn't that great? Sure. This is Beautiful Lake of the Slough, huh? Sure. Now, right over here, of course, this has every recreational feature you've ever dreamed of, and it's all in, ready to go. Look right over here. Here's the proposed golf course right down here. Doesn't it look good? Here's the tennis courts. That'll be right here on the side of this ridge. It looks good, doesn't it, now? You know, and they're already planting seeds where eventually giant redwoods will be growing. Monarchs for the forest, their leafy arms raised in silent prayer. Now, it looks great, doesn't it, friends? Sure, but what about ecology? You know, is something gonna happen to this land? Well, no, sir, friends, they're, in, they're not gonna pave those roads there. They've managed to keep out all those architects, all those sissy planters that come in there with their septic tanks. No, sir, friends, there'll be none of that. Because when you live at beautiful Lake of the Slough, believe me, you're gonna be on your own. Now, as a real American, is $500 too much to spend for a slice of America? a big one-sixth acre? No (laughs) sir. Yes, for only 10% down, that's $50. Here's what you're going to get. First of all, this map right here, showing you how to get to a beautiful Lake of the Slough. (laughs) And next, of course, here's another map showing you how to get out. And that comes complete friends with a hatchet and a compass and three flares. Ranchers on how you can get this, friends. We'll send $50 today to Lake of the Slough Lots, Post Office Box 78924, Fernwood, Ohio 45989. Hey, which one of you folks would like one of these? Come on up
4: here.
3: caveat emptor that of course was from fernwood tonight
2: yeah <laughs> caveat empty <laughs> if, if you saw those lots they were just <laughs> just flat gland that was it yeah so recently I couldn't even find a cactus
3: <laughs> no recently here in london we learned of the sad news that the kellogg's branch mm-hmm. plant was going to close at the end of this year and the decision apparently uh, was one due to changing tastes in the marketplace. With uh, gluten-free diets and paleo diets and a more health-conscious consumer, it seems that we aren't craving those cornflakes as much as we had in the past. And with very little choice, Kellogg's decided to consolidate the manufacture of breakfast cereals resulting in the loss of our local plant. Now, this is the nature of business. Survival, in the face of a fluid demand. It wasn't the fault of the labor union. It wasn't to some... due to some capricious action on the part of Kellogg's. It was a direct consequence, apparently, of our own choices as consumers. But for some who have nothing but greed in their hearts and loathing for business and capitalism, That's not enough of an explanation. They want it all, they want it now, and if possible, they want it for free. This letter recently appeared in the London Free Press in response to the Kellogg's branch plant closing. Quote, It is imperative that the City of London show its support for Kellogg's employees by immediately renaming Kellogg Lane. With its announced closing, this company no longer deserves to have its name memorialized on a London street sign. To not do so would be a figurative slap in the face to those who will lose their livelihood. This will ultimately include more than those employed by Kellogg's. While a name that reflects Kellogg's corporate policies such as Corporate Greed Lane or American protectionism alley holds a certain appeal, I would lobby for something more positive. This road can be renamed after the company with the vision required to expand or found a business on the premises Kellogg's will abandon. To that end, our city and provincial governments need to direct their attention to attracting new business to this community or London London will eventually resemble Flint, Michigan, and that was signed T.L. Smith of London. Well, to T.L. Smith of London, I have this to say. You have obviously forgotten or do not care to remember the billions of dollars Kellogg's has generated in wealth in this town for decades, for the decades it has operated here. To you, a business must apparently forsake the wealth or uh, welfare of its shareholders and its own survivability to satisfy the likes of a person who sees business as a perpetual gravy train immune to the whims of the marketplace and the choices of its customers. To you, time must stand still for a hundred years so that a hundred years from now you would expect us to still be staring, starting our mornings with a snap, crackle, and pop regardless of how people's Tastes may have wanted to change. To T.L. Smith and folk, like him or her, a business is just fine and dandy when it's making a profit, but when that market sours and the business must close, all of a sudden it's a greedy corporation, probably run by some top-hatted man dressed in black who looks out of a penthouse window, twirling his handlebar mustache and cackling to himself. (laughs) Grow up. Businesses come and go. People often lose their jobs and move on. Been there, done that myself. Markets and consumers' choices change from day to day. Kellogg's served this town well, and instead of crying in your milk about the loss of the company, we should perhaps erect a statue to Mr. Will Keith Kellogg of Battle Creek, Michigan, and the prosperity he has given to the thousands, if not millions who work or have worked for him throughout the world, and the joy he gave to the billions of people who enjoy his products. Erect the statue, but move on. Perhaps T.L. Smith, rather than running to government to attract new business to this community, can create his own business. Let's see you try it, and employ hundreds of people and provide the marketplace with something it wants or needs. Or am I I just asking too much?
2: Um, You know... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For some people, yes. There's a a bit more to it than that. You can't fault Kellogg's for their decision. No? But if you go back far enough, and I heard some discussion on this, apparently they once asked for expansion in that area of the city, and this went back uh, one or two councils ago. And they didn't get it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are not leaving Canada. They're going to another place in Canada where they could expand. And it it could well be that we would have been the place they would have expanded to had we allowed them. Yes. Again, but, but that was a involved. decision made a long time ago. You can't blame Kellogg's for for their follow up today. No, as a matter of fact, they're still there for a year. By the way,
3: they haven't closed yet. Oh no, at the yeah. end of this year. Yeah. Uh, but that reminds me of the uh, pharmaceutical, um, uh, the medical pharmaceutical company here, uh, just off Second Street, who wanted to expand, but the city uh, chose Fanshawe Fansha- College for the land rather than this private company and uh, mind you, Fanshawe College is also a private institution, but then that company had to, read, you know, reconsider staying in this in this mm. city. So government, once again, gets involved uh, to the detriment of uh, people, but m- mind you, that's not to say that Kellogg's may not have closed at the end that's of the year. True. Anyway, we don't know. That's, that's we can't true. We can't place that blame on the l- labor union, we can't place it on the city. All we can say is that Thank you, Kellogg's, for the, uh, the good times that you had while we, were, while we enjoyed your, your plant and the, all the people that you employed and the millions upon millions of dollars that you generated into this small burg of London.
2: Well, I guess we don't all have to be crying in our milk. We can pour some cereal in our milk if we want to. <laughs> you know Kellogg's put out a cereal, you know what it was called? Just right. Just right. <laughs> you got that one right. And that's it for another week, our first week in 2014. We'll be back again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color,
4: color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Say, that is a good place for a pole. Then you won't have to run the line over the hill, across the creek, through the apple orchard, and then up to your house. That's why we chose it. Uh, that'll be $800. $800? For what? For putting a pole on my land. On your land? Yeah, you know, when I sold you this farm, I inadvertently kept that little strip of land. <laughs> yeah, I figured you might need it sometime. Uh, Mr. Annie, you... Now, now, Mr. Douglas, before you go saying anything about me that's gonna up the price, I just want you to know I was joshing. I'm gonna give you a quick claim to that land, and it ain't gonna cost you a cent. Well, that's very nice of you. Well, I wouldn't feel right charging all that money to somebody that had just bought an electric milking machine, cream separator, butter churn, and permanent waiver. from Mr. Haney, you're a pirate! <laughs> Care to buy a Jolly Roger?